once I had a job and had enough money and decided like we, I wanted to start a band, I went and bought the cheapest drum set I could. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. On this episode, I get to sit with Paul DiCiccio, a bit of a punk rock renaissance man here in Providence. He's been running Tor Johnson Records for over 17 years, has owned a record store in the city, booked hundreds of shows, played in several recognized bands, and is a part owner of Teeth Like Swords Print Shop. We talk about how Tor Johnson Records and Squid Amp's art collective got their start, his thoughts on the importance of record stores in a place like AS220, and what DIY shows have meant for him. This was really cool to do, so please check them out. We've got some links in the episode description, as well as the song listings for you all. Enjoy, and as always, please subscribe and follow along on Facebook and Instagram, at Living Room UTB, for pictures, show flyers, and more from our interview. Thanks for doing this, Paul. appreciate taking some time to talk about some music. My pleasure. Yeah, so to get things started, do you talk a little bit about where you grew up and your like introduction to music? Sure. Uh, I grew up just south of Boston uh, in a suburb called Randolph, and my parents both had musical history. Like they were in choir in Northeastern. Like my dad played clarinet and my mom played uh, piano. Neither one of them was like music wasn't super prevalent in the house. Um, we had a record player in the basement, but like otherwise it was mostly the radio. Okay. Um, like while I was growing up. Yeah. Uh, in whatever grade it is that you pick an instrument. I really wanted to play drums, and my parents really didn't want drums in the house, yeah. so I started playing saxophone, and got into jazz and things like that, oh, nice. and uh, it wasn't really until high school when you know I started buying more music for myself. Okay. You know, like had, had a job. the first record you bought? Well, the first recorded music I bought was a CD of Boys to Men 2. All right. That was definitely the first, first like thing that I bought with my own money. But one of the first actual records I bought was the special self-titled record. But yeah, it was uh, once I finally started getting into more of that style music and decided I wanted to like the what were you into ska a lot? Were you yeah, I mean like late punk at all or late nineties like ska was your gate, gateway drug. Yeah. You know, like ninety. 596 yeah, like yeah. and being in Boston where the Bostones were from mm-hmm. and, uh ska was definitely your gateway drug mm-hmm. so i started with going to ska shows okay and then from seeing flyers and whatever started going to like more street punk like actual like punk punk mohawk style like shows okay. and then from there into uh hardcore like 10 yard fight sort of stuff okay and then from there into like more indie rock like uh texas the reason garrison sort of stuff cool do you remember your uh first show then 
first concert I ever went to on my own was Smashing Pumpkins on the Melancholy Tour. Okay. So it was them and Garbage. Yeah. Uh, at, you know, now it's what, TD Garden or whatever. It's Boston, yeah. it's Boston Garden. Yeah. It, was, it was Boston Garden at the, the point in time. The Garden. Yeah, oh, come on. <laughs> the Garden. <laughs> um, so that was the first, like, concert. Yeah. And then first, like, show show. Like, for me, the difference is is a concert has seats. Okay. Okay. And a show probably doesn't. Yeah. And, like, that's really a odd distinction, but, like, it just works in my brain. Yeah, if it's what works for you. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the first show was a Fork in Hand Records showcase, which, if you're unfamiliar with that, that was the record label that Big D and the Kids Table owned. Okay. Um, and it was in the basement of Emerson College. Yeah. And it was... Big D and the Kids Table, Kicked in the Head, the Sellouts, probably Drexel. It was like all the bands that were on the, that label. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember your first like Rhode Island concert show? Or uh, Man, that is tough because uh, the f- first year when I moved here for college, I went to like every show. I, okay. I did as much as humanly possible because... You know, for multiple reasons. You know, reason one, you're out of your parents' roof, you know, yep. li- living in a dorm that I didn't want to be in because it was, like, two bunk beds, so it's me and, like, three dudes living in a room. Yeah. Uh, so any time I could not be in that dorm room was a positive. Okay. Um. So, so many shows. Like, I feel like Advocate probably played the Met once a month, and I went to, like, almost all of them. I saw lightning bolted like the safari lounge and uh the jazz june played at the met to like literally five people on like a wednesday night yeah in, in like the winter okay. um and i went to johnson and wales and mm-hmm. lived down on the culinary campus okay. which is like further out of the town side one right, right. Yeah. uh but they have a shuttle that goes right downtown okay and it dropped you off like at the time basically a block away from Safari Lounge, like three blocks away from the Met. It, it dropped you off right on that main route. Yeah, the bows and everything. Exactly. Was, yeah. So um, I would just take that shuttle because it was free. And it oh, ran okay. like it ran until like three in the morning, seven days a week. Yeah. And the idea probably was that you as a student were probably expected to get a job in a restaurant and restaurants are open late. <laughs> so you take the shuttle home. Yeah. I was like, I was working too, but I was just going to as many shows as humanly possible. Okay. So they all kind of blend together. Were you familiar with these bands prior to going or were you just like, I'm going to this club and whoever's playing is playing and, and discovering bands that way. Like, are there, there a little from column A and a little from column B. Okay. Um, my parents, when I finally, when I got my license, were very adamant about not going over state lines to go to shows. Like, mm-hmm. they were okay with me going to concerts, but, like, not traveling that far. Okay. So a lot of the names I would see on flyers of Boston bands when they would play Providence. Okay. So I wouldn't necessarily go to that show, but I might have seen the name and be like, oh, they played with this band, so I'll probably like them, because I like this band. Yeah, yeah. You know? So... It started out that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there were wires from oh, Boston. Yeah, yeah. Whenever they played down here, would mm-hmm. play with Advocate or play with probably like Four Horse, maybe was going on at that t- point in time. Like, bands that would play down here often. And so I'd see the name and be like, oh, 
I'll go to this show. Oh, okay. I recognize that name, you know, and then learn more bands because of that, because of who else was on the bill. Okay. What was the first band that you played in? Uh, once I had a job and had enough money and decided, like, we, I wanted to start a band, I went and bought the cheapest drum set I could. Okay. And, like, uh, the first band I was in was called Defenestration. Um, we were, I can't listen to it. I, I have trouble listening to a lot of my bands later, like going back and listening to, okay. Cause I don't know. I pick up what apart. kind of music was it? Uh, you could, or what were the influences? Sum it up as like an indie rockish band. Like okay. a lot of the other guys were listening to a lot of like, you know, the first hot water music record, the first mm-hmm. like couple braid records, boy sets fire, uh, stuff like that. Our guitarist was pretty classically trained, so oh, okay. like there'd be a lot of jazz influence in it. Um, it was interesting. Yeah. Like it was uh, a weird amalgamation of a lot of sounds. Yeah. Do you remember the first band you played in in Rhode Island? Uh, the first band I played in in Rhode Island was called Matches and Heroin, okay. which is taken from a Stephen King short story. Okay. That band. Uh, evolved a lot like we went through a couple different singers mm-hmm. um in the end we like had a piano in it and uh same sort of thing it was like just a loosely rock based like indie rock based but like drew from a lot of different influences okay the singer in the end was also so like is a real singer like wasn't screaming wasn't like yelling like Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a very interesting band. Okay. And how soon after you had moved out here for school did you start um, that? I, when I first moved here, I still had a band in Boston okay. and like kept traveling up there for a, a lot of shows as well. Mm-hmm. And then those bands broke up around the same time that I started um, booking shows under the Tor Johnson Records moniker and like started the label. I kind of started the label because I didn't have a band. Okay. And I felt like I, I wanted to actively participate within the scene more. Mm-hmm. And so Matches and Heroin probably didn't start until um, probably 03, because I think we lasted until like 05, something in that range. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk more about Tor Johnson Records and how that started and... Sure. Yeah. Um, so Tor Johnson Records um, came out of me being 20 years old, wanting to be an active participant within the music scene here in Providence. Like sort of up until that point when I moved here in 2000, so those first two years, I was very split between the scene that I was, had grown accustomed to in Boston and the new scene that I was uh, sort of thrusting myself into here Mm -hmm. and it was really a conscious effort to push myself more into the Providence scene. Um, I used to book shows like outside of Boston in the suburbs and still was when I was still living here. And so this was like a way for me to book shows here. It was a way for me to um, really just, become more of a part of what was going on here. Mm -hmm. And 
I could have easily just started booking shows without a name, you know. Um, but I did want to. It was interesting to me to start to put out records. Okay. So it was sort of a. It started out as like I'd like to eventually do this. I should come up with a thing now so that way when I start when I book shows I can like attach the name onto it so that way when like a record comes out it like has already existed you know like in All my right. brain yeah um, so you were booking shows under the Tor Johnson name before you would put records out is that weird yeah exactly yeah. Um, there was talk and ideas of records but um, it was it was I think the third show that I booked under the moniker had all three of the bands that ended up being on the first release mm -hmm. play that show and like talking to them there was kind of how we decided on that first release. Okay. Um, Do you remember where that show was? Sure. I used to book at that. Those first couple shows were at the Knights of Columbus and Warwick that was oh, nice. down by like Hendricken. Okay. I, even outside of Boston, was very involved in more of the DIY scene. Yeah. Uh, rent a hall, put on a show, go to Daddy's Junkie Music, rent a PA, you know, yeah, yeah. like, and I, I, while I went to shows in clubs and real venues, uh, I never booked one there at that point in time. Okay. So if you go to the Tor Johnson Records website, uh, under the shows category, there's a past shows that goes all the way back to 2002 with our, the very first show we wow. ever booked. That's awesome. And it catalogs every single show we ever booked. And it is a long time before we actually have a show in a real venue. Mm -hmm. Like, a long time. We booked a bunch of shows at, or I'd say we, it was me. Um, <laughs> I, I booked shows at that night at Columbus and Warwick, and then at the Rumford VFW, and then at, like, the Smith Street and Providence VFW, and, like, I mm. opened the yellow pages to the VFW section and oh. just started calling VFWs because that's what, what else am I going to do? In yeah. 2002, like the internet isn't really what it is now, yeah. you know, like that's what I'm doing. I, you know, I tried pro like basically most of the Providence ones first. Yeah. And every single one was like, nah, man, we've had shows. That's a bad idea. I'm not going to do that. Like how much stuff got broken? Does that or the next thing? Cause yeah. And that's the problem you run into is like people who are irresponsible, like went in and ruined it. That's what ended up happening with the Smith street VFW is they stopped doing all shows because my shows went so well that then they started letting other people book shows and then those people ruined it. Um, yeah. You know, the Providence Turners was the same way. Like I used to book shows there. And, uh, so eventually this one in like Warwick way out like by Hendrickson and like, they, they were like, yeah, right, sure. It's, you know, 150 bucks or whatever. Yeah, okay. I'm like, all right, cool. Sounds good. How, how was the scene back then? Was it, were there a lot of people going to these shows? It depends on the show you booked. Okay. Um, the suburban shows that I was booking were not super well attended. Okay. Like, I was happy when 20 kids showed up. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, when I eventually was able to get into Providence, into the Smith Street American Legion, and some of the Providence Turner shows, definitely more more kids would show up. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is that at the time, Providence proper was a very bike centric city. Oh, okay, and so a lot of people might not have actually had cars. Mm -hmm. So 
getting out to the suburbs was a task. So I would book bands that were from Warwick or, like, had kids that, like, lived in that area or South County, hoping that, like, then that would draw people a little bit more as well. Okay. What was the first release you put out with Tor Johnson? Uh, The first release was a Gorilla Biscuits tribute 7-inch with a band from Providence, a band from Taunton area, and a band from Connecticut. What were the bands? Closer Than Kin from Taunton, Uh, Citizens Unrest from, uh, they were from Warwick at the time, but Providence, and then For All It's Worth from Connecticut. How frequently were you putting out records in those early days? Like, did you have this master plan or was it just like, no. I like this band, I'm going to put something out? Or, exactly. You know, um, it was sort of by the seat of my pants. The first release came out in late 02, early 03, something like that. I, yep. I want to say late 02. And then the next release didn't actually come out until, man, it was probably eight or ten months later. Mm-hmm. I mean, turnaround times at plants were not what they are now. So you could have a whole release in your hand in probably like two months. Wow. Yeah. The second and third release that were supposed to come out for the label never did. And that sort of like me, like I was concentrating on those. If you if you look at the Tor Johnson Records like discography, there is no TJR 002 or 03. It like jumps oh. from 01 to 04. Yeah. Um, and then I just never went in and filled in those blanks. Were there like indie labels that were inspiration to you or other like DIY labels that you were friends with that kind of taught you the ropes or? Totally. Um, at the time there was a lot of stuff going on here in Providence. Um, there was a record store called Contrast Records. Al that ran that, uh, record store also had a label Mm -hmm. and he was awesome. Like yeah. I would go in there as like an 18 year old kid digging and like talking with him. And the amount that he helped me when I started was like huge. And I don't think he would ever even realize it because it was mm-hmm. just like, Hey man, where do you get your records pressed? Yeah. Cool. You know, yeah. like, um, who, like, how do you even get them in stores? How do you even do that? Mm-hmm. Like, he helped out a lot, and then um, Mitch McCarter was running Trash Art, and I would talk with him a lot. Uh, Brian Oakley running Corleone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a bunch of like labels, and like later on, as I established myself and started meeting more people, um, Ben from Load and Ben from Armageddon, and mm-hmm. like eventually Brian from Atomic Action. Um, but like he and I now are more like peers. Because he was not doing his label when I was starting. Okay. Uh, he had like taken a break from the label yeah. um, and then came back to it. So if it wasn't for Al being able to give me general guidelines, mm-hmm. I, I like would have no idea what I was doing at all Like when I started. How many records has Tor Johnson put out now? I mean, it's been, what, 17 years now then? Or? 17 years, yeah. Um, 
So number 49, so minus okay. those two that never came out, 47 releases. Yep. Uh, so 49 is at the plant right now. Awesome. Um, What's number 49? Can you uh, put it out yet? It's a band called Sneeze from Boston. Uh, it's their third LP um, called Finn. And cool. uh, if everything plays out correctly, that'll be out in the fall. Nice. Yeah. And what kind of music is that? Uh, they're kind of like garage rock. Nice. But uh, they're guys who used to be in, like, screamo bands. and uh, Yeah. So it's kind of got a little little edge. It's definitely fuzzier um, mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff. Cool. And I know you've worked with a lot of Rhode Island bands. Um, can you talk about some of the Rhode Island bands that you've put out? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, for me, one of the main things that really gets me to put out a record is probably your live show. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I work with local bands because they're who I end up seeing yep. and like liking. Recently, uh, did an LP for Twin Foxes. Mm-hmm. I ended up, and this was partially because I like helped run the space, but a lot of the bands from the Squid Amps practice space, which is like was an art collective. So, Weak Teeth and uh, Blood Pheasant, older stuff, uh, Saint Jude, mm-hmm. another Dead Juliet. Um, what has been the the biggest Tor Johnson Records release that you put out? Biggest in terms of like selling? Yeah. Um, the first Weak Teeth record uh, okay. sold out completely on my end in I think four months. We needed to do a re- repress. Yes. Um, they were doing a lot of touring at that point in time, mm-hmm. and um, so yeah, we we sold that the quickest and went into yep. a second press. And now that second press is gone. Like, it's completely sold out. Oh, wow. Um, so that that record mm-hmm. it has definitely been the biggest in terms of selling. Cool. Yeah, Weak Teeth is a great band, so they deserve it. Check them out. Um, <laughs> what bands have you played in in, in Rhode Island? Uh, in Rhode Island, um, the first band was Matches and Heroin. Um, which did nothing more than a demo that I did not actually put out. And I, I don't know, you can probably find it online. I haven't looked. <laughs> um, I was in a band called uh, Jesus Centric, mm-hmm. which was a very tongue-in-cheek metal band. Okay. Uh, kind of stoner rocky um, stuff. I was in kind of like a Sabbathy band called Alpha Owl. I know you mostly from a band I played in called Best Practices. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you were playing in Cedros, and we used to play together a lot. We used to enjoy describing that as uh, Drive Lake Jehu on speed. Currently playing a band called Sidorak, which is like kind of a doomy sludge sort of band. You just put out a cassette with them, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, oh. This is the second tape uh, we've done, and it just came out a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. A month ago. How many 
of your own bands have you put out on, on your label? More than I wish. <laughs> okay. Why do you but, say that? So when I first started, I, uh, that was like a rule of mine. Okay. Was to not put out my own band, which is one of the reasons why Matches and Heroin didn't come out on the label. And a lot of it is because if I couldn't convince someone else to put out my band, why should I put it out? Like, in my yeah. brain, it's like a, if I'm not good enough to, like, get someone else to do it, like, is it worth it for me to do it? I don't yeah. know. Keep in mind that at this point in time, I'm, like, like super early 20s, mm -hmm. and bands that haven't really toured or, like, left anywhere or, like, done anything more than local shows. Jesus-centric ended up being an exception because, at the time, we were doing a lot of stuff. We were doing weekends. We were had put out like demo CDRs and like sold them and like mm -hmm. sold merch and got asked to be on shows. And that record was recorded and it was so good in my opinion that I didn't really want to wait to try and pitch anyone. Mm -hmm. So I just did it. Okay. And then that sort of broke the rule. And then that's the box is open. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So with the rise in digital music how do you see that from a label like do you think that people are looking for tangible music that there's that, that people want to open something up read liner notes or like are you seeing people buy just as much digital as they're buying records or tangible items from you i think that uh for the type of music that we do people want a physical item mm -hmm. whether that physical item is ever actually listened to or whether someone takes the download code out and just downloads it, mm -hmm. is uh, debatable, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I think that people want to have a physical medium, mm -hmm. a physical something. Uh, I will always do a physical release. Mm -hmm. I will never do... I, I can't say never. As of right just now, like I will... Just own band. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, as of right now, I will probably never put out strictly a digital record. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it, I don't know, it, it defeats the purpose in my brain. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason I support still print medium, like zines. Yep. It's like, that's what a record label is in my brain. Okay. It, it, yeah. You create a thing. And for me and for most of the bands on the label, um, physical is cake. Digital is icing. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like if someone downloads it off iTunes, awesome. That is great. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to sell records. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's extra for us, for mm -hmm. like the label and for the band. Yeah. Uh, it's nice and it's great, but like it's not necessarily my focus. Okay. One thing I find interesting and shout out to the Modern Vinyl <laughs> podcast. Um, I remember hearing that you um, want to push people to record stores. I feel like the record store is an integral part to the community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you are lucky enough to have a record store in your town or close enough to you that you should be supporting them first before going straight to the internet. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is possibly an old school way of looking at things. It's possibly because of the fact that the label started at a time where web stores didn't really exist mm -hmm. that it's important to me to support 
like, like I said, physical media, but also, uh, brick and mortar, you know, Mm -hmm. um, having owned a record store, it's important to make sure everybody gets a cut, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you are unlucky enough to not have a record store near you, if you live somewhere where they're the only record store is one that has used Billy Joel records and like the odds of you getting anything new from them is doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Definitely support the label directly. If you're going to go to the internet, buy direct from the label. Mm -hmm. If you have the opportunity to walk into a place and buy the record, do that. And that's just making sure that that community space stays open, Mm -hmm. you know? Because I feel like that's important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some of my best music memories are digging in mm-hmm. a record store. Like, I find more interesting stuff that way than flipping through pages on a website. That said, uh, go to the website and buy something. Now. Yeah. <laughs> Tor Johnson Records. <laughs> um, where can people buy Tor Johnson Records, um, albums in Rhode Island. Right now, Armageddon and Olympic okay. um, have pretty much every release. Mm-hmm. And what was the shop that you owned? I owned a shop called Cathartic Records, mm-hmm. which was in the contrast space. Um, I owned that was it on Steeple Street, yes, right? Yes, yeah, uh, right. 5 Steeple Street on the third floor across the hall from Art Freak yeah, yeah. before they moved. Upstairs from... It's called where Art Freak used to be. Yeah, excuse me, where Art Freak <laughs> used to be, where Atlas Bauer Books used to be. Um, yeah, so it was... Uh, I owned it from 04 to 06. Uh, so Al closed Contrast, and then uh, Quinn Murphy uh, from Verse bought mm-hmm. it and named it More Than Music, and very quickly realized that he couldn't be in a worldwide touring hardcore band and also run a record store yeah and so i bought it um a couple months later yeah and opened cathartic records okay and what type of releases were you uh, selling at the shop um we were pretty much a hardcore and like indie rock store um that's what i was mostly listening to at the point at that point in time also armageddon had just opened in I think they opened in 01 or 02 mm-hmm. at a Broadway location. So they had sort of solidified themselves as your punk metal, like grind crust store um, in Providence. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the guys from Drop Dead and that's what they did. And at the time that they opened, Contrast was very much your hardcore, you know, um, spot. And so uh, I sort of kept that going mm-hmm. and um, made it. So we, I sort of consciously made it so that if you came to my store, you would also want to go to Armageddon, maybe if you liked all sorts of music and vice versa. Oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? Uh, it was kind of a conscious effort to not oversaturate Providence with just another record store, mm-hmm. like to sort of curate it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, We're here in... Tor Johnson Records HQ. Yeah. Just, uh, so I'll take some pictures and I'll post them, but it's basically like a record store down here. So Has it always been like a record store? <laughs> no. Um, my wife and I purchased a house uh, about two years ago now, 
every apartment we've ever lived in, and I started the label before meeting her, so including the apartment that I lived in prior to that. Um, I'd always had access to the basement or worked out with the landlord to have access to the basement. Mm -hmm. So normally it was like a couple kind of crappy shelves and mostly boxes. Yeah. And when stuff would sell, I'd have to like dig through boxes. And for a long time now, probably the past 15, whenever I started a web store. So it was probably like uh, 13 years ago at this point. I would do trades with other labels from around the world mm-hmm. um, and really try to curate an actual online web store. And this was mostly after Cathartic Records closed. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a physical store that I could curate. I decided to curate a online store. So there's always been not my stuff and then my stuff. Oh, okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So normally the not my stuff would be the stuff on the shelf. So yeah. I could keep them separate and like dig through it like when someone bought something. And then most of the Toy Johnson stuff was just in boxes. Okay. So when we bought this house, I really wanted to have a space that was set up like permanently that um, I could really organize correctly. Mm-hmm. And so I built these record shelves just from wood and purposefully built it so that there is like a record store top like that you could like hypothetically dig through yeah yeah and yeah, so they're all alphabetized exactly and... so all of that is the not my stuff so all of that is other labels is other bands that i've done trades with or stuff that's on consignment in the web store and so not tor johnson records releases and yeah. then all the underneath the overstock is Tor Johnson Records releases, uh, organized by color and, I don't know, release. briefly mentioned squid amps can you talk more about what that space was and what you guys did there and sure sure um so while jesus centric was going on um when we started we were practicing in the basement of a house on bath street that derek and chris lived in uh derek and chris were also in yavin five at that point in time Mm -hmm. they both ended up leaving that house and derek ended up leaving yavin five and so we decided we needed a space. Mm-hmm. So um, we got word that uh, this warehouse over on Harris Ave, called the AJ Land Building, mm-hmm. had spaces. Called them up, checked out the space. It was awesome. We moved on in. Okay. Was that with Tom? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. yeah. Tom's great. I saw him yeah. the other day. Oh, cool. Yeah. But anyway, so we move into this space that used to be like a woodworker's space. It had all these weird cabinets like built into the wall. And I think trying to remember who else moved in when we moved in i think tabernacle did 
uh, who is like guys from Learn, and a friend of Chris's offered to do a mural on one of the walls because we were told we could paint any of the walls other than the brick. And we were like, cool, let's get a really rad mural in. Mm-hmm. So this kid did a draw, uh, uh, like mock up of a bunch of martial amps with squid tentacles like swimming in like formation across the wall. <laughs> and he did it on like a piece of paper and taped it to the wall. We were like, yeah, that's going to be great. Mm-hmm. Cut to maybe a month or two later, like not even, like we were not in there long. I had a show booked that was Jesus centric with in black and white from Boston and lost hands, found fingers from Cincinnati somewhere. I don't even remember where it was supposed to be booked, mm-hmm. but Two days before the show, they call me and say they accidentally double booked and my show's canceled. We decide to have it at the space. Yeah. Okay. Toss Tabernacle on it because they practice there anyway. Why not? Uh, we move all the stuff. This space is like, you've been there. It's like, yeah. it's, yeah, it's not, it's probably it, like 20, 30 feet by 10, 15 feet or something, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Like, if 50 people could fit in there, it'd be packed. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's a big, that's, that's a, a big, <laughs> um, so we decided to move everything out, uh, and have the show there. Mm-hmm. Went great. Probably like, I don't know, maybe 20 kids showed up, mm-hmm. maybe, but for that room that felt big, we were able to pay both touring bands like a hundred bucks. Yep. Uh, it was, it was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got a call the next day. And at this point in time, by the way, so we, we did make a flyer um, with two days' notice and spread it around everywhere. We decided to call the place Squid Amps, mm-hmm. based on the mural that supposedly at one point in time was going to be on this wall. Yeah. Never ended up happening. <laughs> mural was never painted. Um, Do you have a piece of paper anywhere? I don't know what happened no. to it either. <laughs> like, I'm kind of mad about Frame it. Frame that. Right? <laughs> um, so we decided to call it Squid Amps. Have the show, goes great, goes perfectly, no problems. I get a call the next day from Tom, who runs the building, mm-hmm. and he says, Hey man, uh, what's going on? Nothing. He's like, So, uh, anything you need to tell me about? <laughs> no? Yeah. Don't, don't think so? You have a show there last night? Uh, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Come to find out, uh, someone who was at the show, called the number on the AJ Land building sign asking to rent a space to do shows like the one he went to last night. Wow. Yep. Don't know who this dude was. <laughs> no clue who this guy was, but apparently he had such a fun time that he decided he wanted to rent a space to do the same thing. <laughs> and, and totally busted and told it Totally busted me. Um, ended up that Thomas was like really impressed about the way that we ran it, that we like made sure there was no trash anywhere, like mm-hmm. that we really took care of the event mm-hmm. and proceeded to let me know that anytime we wanted to do more to just give him a heads up. Yeah. Just let him know. Yeah. So that first show was in 2008 and Squid Amp stopped having shows in 2013. And I think we, when did everyone get kicked out like last year or the year before? Yeah, it was probably, yeah, maybe like yeah. two years ago. So probably 2017 mm-hmm. um, was when they needed to do all the construction to that building, so all the bands got evicted. But we, yeah, we ended up not doing um, 
another show there for like two years almost, maybe like a year and a half after that first after show. that first show. Yeah. Um, the reason being was that like it's a tiny room, yeah, and it like if I was booking a show, I'd rather have it bigger, mm-hmm. you know. And it wasn't until we sort of fostered that community there. Um, you know, we were lucky enough that that space turned into something bigger than just a room in a warehouse. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of the bands in there could be considered, uh, I don't want to say fringe Providence bands, but they were bands that like were just doing whatever they wanted to do and didn't necessarily care if they were popular in town. Mm-hmm. You know, and it sort of fostered this community of artistic output that was in a bubble. Mm-hmm. And so we eventually started having the shows there that was just like, screw everywhere else. Like, I just want to hang out with my friends, mm-hmm. play music, and have fun, and not need to worry about someone else's overhead. Yeah. You know? Um, and sort or of just evolved. even the draw of the show, you know? Right. Like, if it was the 10 or 20 friends that you had you were just hanging out and it wasn't like exactly and you could still pay people show up to the show (laughs) right like i've got to pay the room this the you know like the sound guy that and like it's just let's all just hang out give whatever you can the touring band make some money none of the local bands really ever got paid Mm -hmm. honestly like any local band that played squid amps was either a band from squid amps Mm -hmm. or a band we're friends with and they or banned from that building and rarely if ever got paid because you knew that you were just going to have fun and any money that came in should go to the band that needs to fill the gas tank. Yeah. You know, where when you play a venue, uh, dependent on the venue and dependent on the show, there's kind of that expectation that you're just like, you know, I went out of my way and we did this thing. Like if you toss me 20 bucks, like, Yes, and I agree that every band that plays a show should get money, local or otherwise, but the Squid Amp shows were more about the community and like it didn't yeah. that that part didn't matter as much. Yeah. Where are you doing shows now? I mostly do shows at AST20. Mm-hmm. Um I've fostered a really good relationship with them over the past like three bookers that have been there. Um for the past probably 10 plus years mm-hmm. um it, it's it's important to me to make sure that i still do stuff there because of the history attached to that business and to that uh place mm-hmm. but yeah for the most part i do shows there i also do shows at dusk mm-hmm. um and then there's some other random places that uh you know if dates are taken yeah okay yeah, I feel like the AST20 is uh, a place that doesn't get necessarily talked about enough, where now that 242 Main and Burlington closed, AST20 yeah. is the oldest continually operating non-profit all-ages venue on the East Coast. Wow. Uh, they opened up something like four or five months before ABC No Rio in New York. Okay. Um, the only one in the country that's older is uh, Gilman Street. Um, and I feel like ASU 20 doesn't necessarily get enough props for that from the community. Yeah. Like they have supported the city 
like there there's all sorts of pros and cons attached to AST20 that we as local Providence people know. Um, but on a whole, they as a company have supported the fringe elements of Providence continually. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I feel like it's, it's interesting where I book some out of state bands, like out of area bands and tell them, Oh yeah, I got, I got the show at AS220. And they're like, Whoa, wait, really? The AS220? <laughs> and it's like, we take it for granted because yeah. it's here and it's just like, you know, whatever. Um, but outside of here, it, it comes attached to it, that reputation, which is, uh, important to the city. Mm-hmm. So I try, they're always my first step when I'm booking a show, like they, they get the first email mm-hmm. and if the date's not available, then I go from there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, they're always the first step. Cool. Where have you recorded in Rhode Island? Um, I recorded a couple things at, uh, this is going to sound confusing because it's the same name as a venue currently, uh, the parlor. Okay. Um, so Aaron, there's actually two. In- <laughs> oh, right. Sorry. The one with the U. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Aaron and Rob who own the parlor, the bar, yeah. uh, used to own a recording studio, uh, over by jam stage. Uh, the Jesus centric record was recorded there. Um, they recorded a bunch of like interesting records that I didn't even know, but I'll see in like the liner notes. Like, yeah, the made in Mexico athletic automaton split, like is, oh, okay. was recorded there, I guess. Yeah. So Jesus centric recorded there and, uh, we teeth recorded there for the first LP. And mm-hmm. I think they're seven inch. And then I think some side stuff for the best practices LP was okay. recorded there. I think like some vocal extra vocal stuff. Yeah. Um, I recorded at the previous machines with magnets spot, uh, when he was in East Providence. Okay. Uh, matches and heroin recorded there. Mm-hmm. And then alpha owl recorded at Lupine studios, which at the time was in Pawtucket, but I think it, that has moved now. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I know in addition to record label and shows you book and everything like that, you run a print shop. So you print a lot of these uh, jackets for for bands and do shirts and stuff like that. Can you talk about how that came about? Sure. Um, So I've always done like minor printing, like in basements of apartments and things like that of like, you know, just crappy band shirts and had a lot of friends that ran shops, um, John Hunter and the Grant uh, 401 Printing and um, 
there was a shop in Newport that um, the guitarist from Yamaha Five used to work at, mm-hmm. um, and definitely picked up some some tools of the trade. Ten, no, five years ago, mm-hmm. yeah, five years ago. Uh, no, at this point, more, because uh, it was around the time of the ten year anniversary. So it was like seven years ago. Jeff Novak, who is another drummer locally in a bunch of different bands, uh, currently Darklands, mm-hmm. um, bought a bunch of printing equipment off of a friend of his that was closing like a small garage shop, like just a small like thing he had in his like house garage. Okay. And he didn't really have much experience with it other than the fact that he wanted to just print his own band's merch, save money. Yeah. Didn't necessarily know what he was doing, not to say I knew what I was doing, because I really didn't. I just had a little bit more experience. And so... Of, like, making screens. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, like, the whole process. So he invited me to kind of be a part of it at the same... Under the same idea that I would be able to print all the Tor Johnson stuff, and I would be able to print my band stuff. And it sort of started as just a vehicle for us to be able to print our own stuff. Okay. Um, and we were both like teaching each other and learning like from each other, uh, trial and error sort of, sort of ways since then, as it's like sort of grown, I definitely have pushed it into being more of a business Mm -hmm. where, um, I've taken on a lot of jobs from local bands and, uh, local artists and when it first started, I got I would get some occasionally because people found out I had a shop. Mm-hmm. And recently in the past probably two years, but really hardcore in the past like six months, I've been pushing it to be more of a legitimate business, like more of a uh, thing mm-hmm. that, you know, hopefully eventually I'll be able to work less yeah. and, and do that more. Yeah. Um, so it's turned into like a, a second, like real job where the label has always been a job, but it's more of a hobby. Like I'm not making any money off of it. It's like for pleasure that I put out records. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. Can you list the things that you do at? Sure. We should probably also tell people the name of the show. (laughs) Right. right? Probably. Uh, (laughs) it's called Teeth Like Swords, uh, which like Sidorak, we're going to get real nerdy for a second. Uh, if, yeah. you, if you've read The Hobbit, uh, when they are describing Smog the dragon, yeah. uh, his teeth are like swords. And our logo is actually within some of the hardcover Hobbit versions, like one that I own. There is a map in the uh, like back cover, like in, inside the cover. Mm-hmm. And on the mountain where smog lives is a depiction of a dragon, um, like very crudely drawn. And that is our logo is yeah. actually the dragon of smog. Cool. Yeah. Cause we're nerds. Okay. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we do, uh, any sort of fabric stuff. So, uh, shirts, you know, uh, hoodies, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do posters, we do, uh, record jackets. We've done, CD packaging. Uh, we've done all sorts of weird things, like uh, we did wrist and headbands, like sweatbands for Poco Loco. Okay. Mostly because they decided they wanted them for the summer in the truck. Yeah. Um, but then they sold them too, or like gave them away. 
So we've done a lot of cool, like, random things. Yeah. We've silkscreened B-sides of records, um, ones that I've put out, but then also ones other people have put out. I still use it as a vehicle for the label, so uh, every test press that I put out gets alternate packaging. Like, oh, okay. So for the five test presses you get, I silkscreen five record jackets of, like, something weird, some, like, uh, alternate packaging. Yep. Um, I do... Uh, recycled lp jacket flyers now like for myself for shows like i'll take an lp jacket because there's always an overrun when okay. you when you order records like hypothetically you get 500 records mm-hmm. okay and you order your 500 jackets you probably end up with 550 to 600 it's just how it works you always get extra oh, there's okay. just an always an overrun and that's just like something that exists within the record industry and it's helpful if hypothetically you were to do a repress, then like you have some record sleeves. Mm-hmm. But um, most of the time, those record sleeves just sit around mm-hmm. and really have no use. So I've started cutting them in half and flipping them because you have a white inside. Yep. And using them for show flyers. Oh, cool. So instead of just printing a, you know, eight by ten at Kinkos, you now have a you know, twelve by twelve square. Silk screen like a one color flyer onto it, and yeah, now it's something more eye catching at shows or like four shows. That's so right. Started, started I doing do that. that happily. Uh, <laughs> for for anyone local that's listening, I offer that for a dollar a piece, minimum of twenty. Yeah, uh, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> cool, but yeah, um, it's been fun. It's uh, definitely an interesting uh, process, an mm-hmm. interesting thing. And now, like, going out and trying to actually find, like, more uh, customers and trying to make it, like, a bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff and I have been contemplating moving into a bigger space so we can get newer equipment, things like that. Oh, that's yeah. great. It's growing that way. Yeah. yeah. Trying anyway. Yeah. Looking at everything that you've done from playing in bands and running the label and booking shows, like, is there something that, that you have oh, wow. kind of look at in your career that's that you're... Uh, proudest of was it yeah sure um i feel like best practices went the furthest jesus centric toward the most Mm -hmm. but best practices probably got the biggest reaction Mm -hmm. uh we were able to get on a label not locally Mm -hmm. um we played fest in gainesville twice got Mm -hmm. asked to play that played uh fest called i got brains and Virginia. Yeah, I'd say best practices. It's also the most out of my wheelhouse in terms of playing. Okay. I'd never really played music like that before. And um, while I enjoy listening to it, it was interesting on that end and sort of pushed me musically. Yeah. um, A little bit more. Yeah. From a a label end, um, getting asked to do uh, an interview with Razor Cake and having it be, like, a four or five page page spread, and then they even did, like, an online additional supplement. Um, Yeah. Like, that was huge, because, like, that's now really the only ongoing print zine that's still going. Mm -hmm. You know, now that Maximum Rock and Roll closed down, like, Razor Cake's probably it. Yeah. Um, The label has brought about 
a bunch of like weird interactions just having like sort of existed, if that makes sense. Um, one of the most interesting ones was uh, many, many years ago at this point, uh, probably at least 10. I got an email from a .gov email address, which not that that scared me, but um, I'll be I'll be uh, transparent about that. The record label doesn't exist in the government's eyes. Okay, <laughs> it is not a real business. Yeah, <laughs> it is purely a hobby because uh, it's not like I make money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I never bothered making it like legit. Yeah, like a LLC company. Yeah, like that. it's yeah. not real. Like um, it's you know just me spending money on records and then them sitting around. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so. It was a guy who worked on Ellis Island, and apparently every Halloween, they show a movie featuring actors that pass through Ellis Island, and um, it's like a big gala, it's like a big thing, yeah. okay, that like you have to get tickets and like in- invited to, and it's like, um, so they were showing Plan 9 from Outer Space, yeah, which has three actors that pass through Ellis Island, one of which being Tor Johnson. Okay. And so they were reaching out to me to send stuff so they could make a, dis- a Tor Johnson display, and they wanted to include Tor Johnson Records stuff in the display. Okay. Just because, like, the name is attached. Yeah. And, like, I'm like... That Tor Johnson, the actor, right. had, had inspired the name for this label. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, and... So I just, I kept being like, dude, you don't want to do that. We're a shitty punk label. Like, <laughs> why do you want us to be a part of this, like, big deal? Like, so eventually I, sh- I sent him, like, a, like, a t-shirt and, like, a couple records. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, it was, like, they sent pictures. And it was, like, a really nice display. And That's it was, really like, cool. kind of yeah. weird. Like, I've been interviewed in, like, horror magazines for, like, just the name of the label. Like, uh, it's, uh, it's been, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. When you compile it all and like look back on it all, it's like wow, that's a lot of weird, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, cool, Paul. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>